This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. I come to you with four gifts. My first gift is a lotus flower. Do you understand? My second gift is a golden net. Can you recognize it? My third gift is a shepherd's round dance. Do your feet know how to dance? My fourth gift is a garden planted in the wilderness. Could you work there? These are my four gifts. Dare you accept them? So yes, four gifts written in sometime in 1976. And uh, it's Sangharachta in um, almost, how can I say, almost sort of prophecy mode in the sort of William Blake sense. I mean, at that time he was he was really into William Blake. He was reading a lot of William Blake and even wrote, uh, I think a bit later on, an article called Buddhism and William Blake where he showed the parallels between Blake's vision and Blake's mythology and, and Buddhism, particularly Tantric Buddhism. Uh, and there is, I think, that kind of quality of sort of prophecy in that poem and also something very enigmatic what are these strange gifts the lotus flower which he's asking you to understand the golden net can you recognize that golden net and what about this shepherd's round dance and do your feet know how to dance and where is this garden where is this wilderness where you know, which he's offering as a place for you to work in. And, you know, these gifts are no ordinary gifts. They're, they're issued as a sort of challenge, a dare. Dare you take these four things on. And I rather like this mode of, of Sankarachita, this sort of oracular sort of, uh, you know, quality of, 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 of his poems. There's a strong side of Sankarachita. There's a strong sort of visionary side in, in, in a sense uh, you don't often come across it because in, in, in these days he's a very, very old man. He's nearly 90. And, uh, and in some ways he's, he's often very, very measured in his writing and some of his talks. But there's another side uh, which is very intense, you know, vital, uh, energic, uh, inspired, uh, even on, a, on occasion a bit sort of manic, uh, in the best sense. And, you know, I, I, I also, when I hear this poem, when I recite this poem to myself, when I think of this poem, of course I see him as he was back in the 70s, you know, the kind of appearance that, that he took, you know, when I was, was ordained, which was long, you know, rather greasy black hair, you know, and very often wearing these, you know, his his his, his yellow robes, which are a kind of bit, a bit, you know, a little bit crumpled and, or if not that, you know, a pair of, you know, rather kind of off-colour cords and, 
you know, a jacket and, you know, rather sort of bent glasses. There's something a bit sort of strange uh, about him. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I love this sort of uh, particular phase of, of Sangharachita's life because I encountered him around this time and that's kind of how he looked when uh, he ordained me, when he named me, when he initiated me into uh, the Dharma life, um, really sparking me off. Um, you know, it, it, sometimes people ask us, you know, in the order, you know, why, what's, what's the, why is it a good idea to be ordained? You know, I mean, I couldn't really give you a rational explanation. I mean, I could, I could, I could give a brilliant explanation. I'm doing it all the time at Padmaloka. But the thing is, it's about being sparked off. Kanyanavarchi was talking about that. Being sparked, sparked off with energy and inspiration, a current of energy and inspiration. But to do what? To do what? To do what with that energy and inspiration? Um, and that poem, in a way, has got that kind of quality to it. It's, it's interesting. I find it very mysterious, and it does you know, do something to me in terms of energy and inspiration. But it does have quite a detailed meaning, which I will unpack uh, in the course of this talk. I was a bit torn about what I was going to do with the talks this evening, the talk this evening, or the talks. Maybe there's two or three that are going to roll into each other, um, you know, hopefully for not too long. Because uh, Gnanavacha had also told me that um, it was BAM this month, which I gather means Buddhist Action Month. I don't quite know why we have to have a month devoted to Buddhist action. I'm being a Buddhist activist all the time. Yes, thought I'd get that in. Uh, but anyway, it seems to kind of help people, you know, to have a, a month devoted to Buddhist activism. I mean, there is no other kind of Buddhism, by the way, than an activist Buddhism. So I thought, well, let's, if we're going to have a talk on Buddhist activists, well, we really need to have a good talk about energy. Because, I mean, it's, it's no good being an activist in, in theory you know, and having nice ideas about it, there's got to be energy. There's got to be energy that's really aroused, that's up and running, um, that's really flowing, buzzing, sparking, um, really happening, and that energy's got to be flowing into really skillful, constructive, creative activity. So I wanted to talk about energy, but then I had this thing about the four gifts going on in, in, in my mind. So I've got to try and roll these, these two things uh, together. So the first thing I'm going to... Uh, well, I'm going to hopefully mention in this talk a teaching, traditional Buddhist teaching, uh, on virya. Virya, which has various translations. Energy, uh, energy in pursuit of the good, uh, vigour, diligence... Um, effort um, has all these different meanings. It's a very, very strong word in, in Sanskrit. You know, virya has meanings of potency. It's even one of the words in Sanskrit texts for semen. You know, very, very uh, masculine sort of word. Masculine in, in, in the sort of archetypal sense, if you like. But um, don't take that to mean man as opposed to you know, women or anything like that. It's, it's, but I think you can sort of see the sort of teaching here. It's just very strong, aroused energy that is flowing into the Dharma life. And 
One of the points that's consistently made in Buddhist tradition, without such energy, without energy, you cannot make any spiritual development. You cannot develop in the Dharma. It's absolutely impossible. I think sometimes the image of Buddhism in the West is very, very unfortunate. You know, it's the rather sort of, um, how can I put it, you know, rather sort of tepid, you know, half-smiling, sedate uh, Buddha image. And people have the idea that Buddhists are really sort of calm. Um, well, they are calm, but, but really calm, almost sort of indifferent uh, people, you know, really sort of not bothered about what goes on around them. This is really, a, you know, terrible slander, you know, on the Buddhist tradition. Um, whenever you look at Buddhist texts, whenever you look at Buddhist art, what comes over is energy, tremendous energy. The, the, the ancient depictions of the Buddha, some of the first Buddha images from Mathura in, in, in northern India are really, really powerful. Uh, they're based on the, the original Indian Yaksha uh, image, who, which were sort of nature spirits, very, very strong you know, images. And you know, it's just all depicting the need for very, very engaged energy in your personal life and in your life in relationship to the world. Compassion uh, is powerful. Compassion is powerful energy. Wisdom is powerful energy that makes a difference to yourself and makes a difference uh, to others. So if we're, if we're to have a Buddhist activist month or whatever it's called, we need to talk about energy. We need to bring up the whole area of energy, the whole topic of energy you know, in our life. Sangharachita once said back in the day, he thought that, I can't remember the proportion, but it was something like, we're only operating on 10% of our energy. Something ridiculous. That we have loads more energy available to us. But it's all kind of locked up in things like negative emotion, cynicism, really critical of cynicism. Um, it's being sort of drained away in scattered, you know, divided, distracted kind of pursuits. It's caught up in doubt and indecision about what we're doing in, with our lives. So we just don't have energy uh, available. It's just frittered away, dammed up, blocked, whatever you want to call it. So we need to address this issue of energy. How do we arouse it? How do we get it going? Now that poem, like I said, has a lot of energy in it. It's got a lot of that sort of prophetic kind of you know, William Blake energy, who also uh, had, a, had a lot to say about energy. What did he say once? In one of his aphorisms, energy is eternal delight. Energy is eternal delight. Um, as if, you know, as if to, to say when you contact the real flow of, of, of creative energy, you're living in a delight that's eternal. There's just this eternal joy and delight available to you. So that, that poem communicates that energy. It communicates vision, basically. I mean, when we were around back at that time, so in 76, we're working on this place, this old um, fire station deep in the, in the Bethnal Green jungle, you know, and it really did felt like, feel like that in those days. It was a very, very, very rough part of town, pretty bleak, I tell you, compared with, you know, how sort of sedate it's become now. Um, 
you know, it was a it was a really rough part of town back in the seventies. I really hated living here. I mean, I thought it was really well, sort of hated and sort of loved it. You know, but you know, it was it was a very very rough area. But the thing is, we were here because of this vision, because this vision that that Sangharachta was uh, communicating. Uh, he'd sparked us off. And the first level of virya, according to one Buddhist tradition, is called the virya, the energy that is ever ready. The virya that is ever ready. It's a funny phrase, isn't it? Sound? They still make ever ready batteries? Anyway, that's what comes to mind. The, the, the virya that's roused up. It's as if you've, got, you've roused up your energies. You've, you've stirred yourself up. And, you know, they, they, you know, to stir yourself up, to rouse yourself up, you need inspiration. You need inspiration. You need, and the inspiration, where does your inspiration come from? It comes really from meaning and purpose and vision. That's where it comes from. A lot of people don't have energy. Well, they've got it, but they're not aware of it or they're not in contact with it because they don't have vision. Because they don't have meaning, because they don't have purpose. In a way, they don't have hope. They can feel very hopeless and very cynical uh, and even a bit depressed about themselves and about what life is for. Not surprising, not surprising, given the pornography of endless, terrible news that, you know, the 24 hour news streaming from all over the world, which you can't do anything about all these terrible things that, that you read about happening everywhere, on top of that climate change and all the rest of it. I mean, it's, it is obscene, and it's, I think it's immoral, to be honest. I really do, because no human being can take that. No human being can take that onslaught of negativity and actually survive and live in a healthy way. I urge you, if you're serious about rising, rousing up your energy... Really think about the news you look at and how much you look at it and what you do with it because you're just adding to the burden of worry and anxiety, which is hard enough. Let's face it, it's hard enough to deal with it when you're making a living, looking after a family and all the other things that you do in a city like London. Um, it's it's going to really pull you down. It's going to really do you in. So you've got to really think about that. So it's very easy, I think, for us to lose inspiration, even hope, about what we can do. So we need a really positive vision. We need to expose ourselves to a much more positive vision. And that poem of Sangharakshita's, so the first gift he offers, uh, my first gift is a lotus flower. Do you understand? He's invoking, he's invoking this you know, fabulous, ubiquitous, almost clichéd Buddhist metaphor and image of the lotus, you know, really pushing up out of the mud and the swamp. The lotuses are so incredibly beautiful in India. You know, the, you see pink and red lotuses so gorgeously beautiful and, 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 and lovely and sweet, and yet they seem to grow in the most thick and viscous and disgusting of muddy ponds. It's really, really weird to see that, the way these things seem to just push up and just transfigure this whole space. Well, this 
metaphor, of course, is the Buddha's metaphor for us. After his enlightenment, uh, the Buddha, it said that the Buddha looked at us. He looked at life. He looked at all of life. He'd had a doubt about whether the liberation that he'd undergone through his enlightenment, this complete, open-ended, free consciousness and the satisfaction and bliss and creativity that went with that could have any, in a sense, meaning for people. Could have any, could even be heard, understood, listened to, got hold of by people in the world. How could they see something so profound, so subtle, so extraordinary, so transcendent, so deep, you know, with all their cravings and hatreds and cynicism and confusion and sloth and lack of energy. How on earth could they see? How is that possible? But he, he, he was urged to look again. He was moved to look again. And it's interesting what he says because he gives a metaphor. In a way, you sort of don't really know what he saw because he saw it with his Buddha eye and whatever is seen with the Buddha eye can't really be put into any kind of concept. It's his profoundest vision looking at us, looking at living beings. And all he could say was, it was as if I saw a great lake, a great swamp, a great viscous, muddy pool in which beautiful white and red and blue, and pink, and yellow lotuses were moving up out of that mud, beginning to open, beginning to open to the sunlight. So it's as if his actual full experience of enlightenment was seeing that potential and emergent and emerging enlightenment with all of us. And at that moment it said this great, well this great sort of, we call it compassion, but that word can be so terribly misunderstood and so confused with pity, but it's as if he started to shake with something, you know, vibrate with that in us, his full enlightenment, vibrating with that potential in all of us. And that just turned into activity. Call it love, call it compassion, call it energy, but just spontaneous activity, wanting to go out, wanting well, not to teach, That's you're going to be celebrating the first teaching of the Dharma in a, in a couple of weeks, but to communicate, to really communicate, to get into rapport, to befriend, teach in that sense, to, to show, to reveal, to share. Yes, indeed, to even articulate, you know, what people needed. So when we talk about energy being roused up, the first thing we've really got to get hold of is that potentiality. That potentiality in us, that, 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 that you know, seed, that movement within us that, that's trying to kind of go beyond, that's trying to lift up you know, out of the mud. So often people just dismiss that, dismiss that longing, that yearning, that sense of adventure you know, that they want, they want to add, oh, well, you know, that's the stuff I did when I was young, you know, when I took drugs and things like that, or, you know, whatever it might be, whatever version you've got. 
and they and they and they and they just push it down, and so they they they, they just sit on their energy, or there's this terrible sort of disheartened quality that that you feel a kind of you know sense of the truth or sense of you know really wanting to do something with yourself, transform yourself in the light of something good, bring something into the world, and yet there's so much that just gets thrown of you thrown at you. You know, which seems to sort of push that down. Uh, well, don't don't give in to that. The worst sort of sin you could—we don't use the word sin in Buddhism—but the worst. I'm going to use it. The worst <laughs> sin you could possibly do is to deny your Buddha nature. Is to deny your potential for Buddhahood. That's the worst sin. In fact, there's a, a tantric puja that, that says, "I confess the sin." of not recognising my own mind to be the Buddha. And, you know, it's not saying that you're enlightened already in all the, the fullest sense. You don't have to do anything. But it, the worst sin that you can possibly commit is to not recognise your potentiality to really develop and unfold yourself. And if you do that, there just won't be energy. And I was very, the, first thing that, the first time I really got thinking about energy and inspiration and, and, and hope and these sorts of qualities and just ordinary human life the importance of energy for human dignity was in India when I, where I lived for many years and reading the conversion speech by Dr. B.R. Ambedkar Baba Seb Ambedkar who, the great leader of the Dalit community who in the late 1950s led his community hundreds of thousands of people into the Dharma and because of Sagarachita's connection with that community, I was a bit involved with, with, with the work in that community in the, in, in the late 70s, communicating the Dharma there. And this conversion speech, which he, he gave in Marathi, because he was, the conversion happened in Maharashtra, it's very hard to, you know, to get the translation of it properly into English. Friends of mine say the Marathi is really direct and, and heartfelt. And one of the things that, Ambedkar talks about why, why we need to be Buddhist, why we need to break out of Hinduism, why we need to sort of really turn against Hinduism and caste. He says it's because of energy, because of uhas, the lack of uhas, which is rising up energy, inspiration. He said the religion that we've come from has not allowed us to experience this uhas, this energy. And if a man or a woman doesn't experience energy, either their mind or their body is diseased in some way. And he said very, very powerfully that if you are denied your dignity as a human being, if you're denied the possibility of development, cultural development, human development, development on some sort of spiritual path, your being will become diseased. It will go bad. It will go bad if you're not living from that energy. He said in Buddhism, in the Dharma, in the teaching of the Buddha, we will breathe in an atmosphere where we can reap the consequences of our actions. The Buddha teaches karma. The Buddha teaches dharma. That if you act in a particular way, in a positive way, the positive consequences will come to you. They will redound to you. That 
is unavoidable, whereas the religion we've been in before has not allowed us that dignity. Tremendous, you know, speech he was giving about, yes, you know, human uplift, uplift on every possible level, the human level as well as the sort of higher, as it were, dharma and spiritual levels. So I, I was very, very taken with this when I read this, that if we deny that upward movement, that desire to transform ourselves along the path, in a way, any kind of path. You know, I don't really care if people become Buddhists or not. I'm not interested in conversions. But a human life, a committed human life, where you're really developing your mind, your consciousness, where you really feel that you can do that, and you can expand in that, and you can share that with others. Yes, do that. Whatever it is, do that. Do that as much as you can. Whatever you want to call it. That's the life to live. And then with that, you get energy. That there's so many people not doing what they really want to do. So many people live lives where they're not really living from what is deepest within them. Well, you've got to take responsibility for that. You've got to do something about that. It's bad for people not to live from what is deepest within them, not to do what they really want to do. I know what everybody's going to say. I've got this responsibility, that responsibility. How can I? Yes. But you've still got to ask that question. What do I really want to do? Wouldn't it be terrible when you get to your deathbed with a terrible regret? I have not lived according to my inspiration. I have not lived according to my vision. Terrible. Terrible situation. I remember, and of course, if you don't live from it, it goes nasty. It goes nasty. It becomes negative. You know, I think a lot of depression, a lot of cynicism, a lot of negativity is people not doing what they really want to do. That's what it is. That's, as I've noticed it in myself, if I'm getting narky and bad-tempered, you know, usually it's because I'm not really doing what I want to do. I haven't really said what I should have said. I haven't really created what I should be creating. I'm sitting on my positive energy. We've got this idea, we're always told, that, that what's deep down must be negative, must be something sort of traumatic. And deep down, we're all really nasty people. It's really weird, you know. I mean, you know, you can sort of get this sometimes, can't you, in some sort of forms of, of psychology. It's almost like old-time religion, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Buddhist tradition says no. There's probably more positive, inspired, creative energies that you're sitting on, which are desperate to find expression. I mean, if every single living being has the potential for Buddhahood, well, there's obviously much bigger and greater positive forces that we sit on that turn sour than negative ones. And, you know, I remember an order member in India um, telling me his life story. An order member named Jutinda, beautiful man, very tender guy, very lovely, very loving. Uh, his background was very violent. Lived in a slum around, um, you know, near 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 our big centre in, in in Pune, and he was part of these very violent kind of um, kind of Buddhist, not, but they call themselves Buddhist, kind of militant kind of groups um, called Dalit Panthers, kind of inspired by the Black Panthers and things like that. And, but they were really heavy, the, these guys. And, you know, they'd go, he said he used to go around with a really big sword 
very, very intimidating of local shopkeepers and things like that, and very, very enforcing the will of, of some of the big politicians. And, you know, so a really, really rough uh, background. And um, one day saw a big, big crowd going towards um, our big Buddhist centre, you, know, you know, thousands and thousands of people turning up and pushed his way through the crowd. And at that moment, it coincided with Sangharachita going in a sort of group of people to give a lecture um, on, a, you know, it's a really big event, Sangharachita coming out. And just at the moment... Jutinda burst through the crowd. Sangharachita happened to turn in his direction and just said, good. And it changed his life. He said, nobody had said good to me before. Good. Just good. Wow. Like a mantra. Went to the lecture, plunged into the Dharma, became an order member. I mean, but, you know, it's obvious. You know, very, a lot of energy, a lot of, you know, really wanting to do something, but never being given that opportunity, that potential never being seen. And just that word, said with a real smile and real love, good, changed his life. It's an amazing, uh, in, in, inspiring story, but not unusual. I've got a lot of uh, Buddhist friends in India with, you know, pretty violent, you know, backgrounds, you know, very much involved in, in, in violent political activism. And they came to the Dharma and very quickly connected with it, and realised that that very destructive approach, that very violent approach to things, was not what was required, was not what was needed, couldn't really do any good, but never really being given an opportunity, never being given a vision of what was possible you know, with their consciousness. So... We need to, you know, rouse up, you know, that energy. We need to have a vision of life. And the Buddhist vision of life basically is that it is all for evolving and changing and developing and that we have the potential to develop that as much as possible. But that's, you know, all very good. And it was all, you know, we were all a bit like that when we all bumbled along to the Dharma back in the 60s and... 70s, there was a lot of energy and, 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 and inspiration and searching and all the rest of it. And most people had sort of, you know, LSD backgrounds and, you know, weird music backgrounds and all that kind of thing. And, you know, I mean, for myself, um, you know, I was a bit young to have done a lot of that, but I'd done a bit of it. But I was definitely up for, you know, something really sort of mystical with as little work as possible, uh, where I could be sort of transported to another dimension without having to do very much. You know, that was, that was basically my attitude. Okay, I was a teenager. It's understandable, I think. Um, but, you know, I really came to the Dharma because I really wanted to get a bang off it, if you like, just, you know, really get ecstatic through it, which I think is legitimate, personally. And um, it's still... You know, present to be honest. But anyway, <laughs> but then there's another there's another virya, the second virya. Okay, you've got it roused up. You've got the ever ready energy. The second virya is energy applied to work. Energy applied to work. Um, it's not enough that it's all roused up in fantastic talks and you know all the rest of it, and you know going on retreat and all the rest of it. It's got to be applied to a sustained path of practice. So the second of Sangharachita's vision of things, my second gift is a golden net. 
Can you recognise it? A golden net. And of course, gold, you know, it's, it's one of those, you know, wonderful kind of images of um, gold is the pure metal, isn't it? It can't be corrupted. So we're dealing with purity. And a net is something that gathers everything up. And perhaps Sangharakshita had in mind the different sort of traditions of different images of the net in Buddhist tradition. You have uh, the Brahmajala, the great all-embracing net, which is uh, the first of the Buddha's discourses in the oldest collection, the, the Pali Canon, the Brahmajala, where the Buddha just gathers up all the kind of philosophies and views of his day. He critiques them, basically shows their shortcomings, their limitations, their falsifications, and reveals his own vision, his own vision of existence, his own path of practice. In a way, he gives the map of the path. He, gives, he shows you where to work, how to work, what you need to do, what you need to get into view. And Sangharachita certainly did this with us in all sorts of ways. So he didn't just teach, you know, meditation, which is the great practice to bring about the transformation of consciousness. Sangharachita in the early days was also very concerned that we thought clearly. We thought clearly about what we were doing. We thought clearly about the Dharma. We thought clearly about our situation, the circumstances of the world, using classic, you know, Buddhist teachings like the Wheel of Life. I'm sure you've all heard of the, the Wheel of Life, that, that, that there is a kind of state of being, which most of us are in most of the time, where we're just going round and round and round the same re reactive patterns. We, we're acting out of ignorance. We're just responding out of our cravings and our aversions, and that leads to suffering, all kinds of versions and variations of suffering and limitation. That's the wheel, the reactive cycle. So he's very, very concerned that we really have a, have a good look at that. We don't pretend that we're in some place that we're not. We don't present, pretend that, you know, this is nirvana, this is samsara, this is the endless round. And you need to see that in yourself and in your world and not be sentimental about it. Get this seen in, in into view don't kind of pretend that it's something that it that, that it that it isn't if you're acting out of greed hatred and delusion well at least have the guts to be honest about that and not dress it up as some fantastic spiritual trip really name it you know what 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 you're involved with i mean there's all an awful lot of waffle in the so-called spiritual religious world people not really wanting to name things as they are but then it's not just a matter of getting the wheel into, into the picture. You also need to get the path into the picture. You need to see the way in which you can move from here to there. So you need to get all the kind of classic descriptions of the path into focus. So very, very early on with Sangharachita's teaching, as well as teaching you know, meditation and the wisdom teachings, very, very, you know, quite soon he got us onto what he called the path of regular steps. Because you know, everybody coming along wanted the far-out, tantric, you know, blissed-out teachings. I did. But no, you've got to start with ethics. 
That's the first stage of the path. You've got to start looking at abstaining from harming living beings and developing loving kindness. You've got to look at abstaining from taking the not given and practicing generosity. You've got to, and so on and so forth. I'm sure you all know those five precepts. You need to live a life of skillfulness. You need to really take responsibility for your actions day to day. You need to see what your mind is really doing if you're going to live this path. And then, yes, moving on more deeply into meditation, into the higher states of consciousness, those wonderful dhyanas, those absorption where consciousness is sort of flooding across the sort of boundaries of, of self and other. But understanding that that's only a stage of the path and what you need to then to do is to start seeing things as they really are. You know, stripped of all your fancies and trips and prejudices and biases and you know all the other things that you do. Really getting things into view, really seeing into impermanence, for example. The arising and ceasing, the arising and ceasing going on. Really looking, on, looking into that more and more deeply. So really looking into the path and really seeing how the path is leading you to greater and greater liberation. But more than that, another big part of the Buddhist vision, actually having a real resonance with enlightenment itself, with Buddhahood itself. And one of the great things about Sangharachita as a teacher is that um, he really, um, you know, he really tries to evoke, you know, the, 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 the goal in all sorts of ways. Sometimes people say, well, the Buddha didn't say anything about Nirvana. It's all beyond words, so you can't say anything about it. But that's not the case. Buddhist tradition is extremely rich in trying to indicate you know, what we're trying to become. So particularly in imagery, you know, the beautiful Buddha images and all the different forms of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, as well as the wonderful descriptions of Buddhahood as complete liberation, for example, or the fullness of, of compassion. All these different ways of talking about it. So he gave us this golden net, this vision of life, so that we know where to work. We know how to apply ourselves to working. We know what to do at any given time. It's so important with, with energy. It's got to go into something. It's got to go into a task. Meditation is work. I know we emphasise relaxation and all the rest of it, probably quite rightly, but the traditional terms for meditation practice is kamatana. Kamatana means place of action or place of work. You know, the mind needs to be worked on. Uh, it's working all the time. So, you know, make it into a place of good work, you know, skillful work. Um, but also with Sangharachita, there was literal work for us. That was very interesting. Um, you know, coming along. I just thought I'd live a life of, you know, get off into meditation retreat and, you know, disappear into, into the mists of eternity or something like that. Um, but then, you know, there's this great vision of trying to bring the Dharma more fully into this world, more fully into this place. So we got this place. Um, this beaten up old fire station and we didn't have any money we didn't have any 
there was a bit enough to kind of you know convince the council that we we could have a go at making it work i think they were quite skeptical at the time the uh, the enlightened tower the, um, you know tower hamlets council fortunately it was a good labor gov- labor, labor council in in those days um, but they they needed to do something with this place because it was a wreck and I think they were convinced by the enthusiasm of the order members that, that, that were involved in that. But then it was a question of work. I mean, we couldn't, didn't have the money to employ builders. We didn't have a big organisation behind us. We weren't sort of sexy and exotic enough to attract incredible donors or anything like that. In fact, we were you know, the, we the, the exact you know, opposite. I mean, we, we, we really were a bunch of sort of refugees, I think, from from civilization, you know, in those days, you know, all, you know, in our second-hand clothes and, you know, all that kind of thing. And, you know, Sangaraj is terribly uncharismatic and, you know, really it just wouldn't kind of play that, couldn't, in a way, play that kind of game. So we had to work. And so this whole thing of energy going into work, you know, was just, it was just so important. And seeing work as practice, work as practice. And, and working together, working together. So that third gift, my third gift is a shepherd's round dance. Do your feet how, know how to dance? That comes in here. Um, when uh, I think I gave a talk on this once, on this, and I mentioned the shepherd's round dance, and Sangarachta was um, introducing the talk, he said, I think I said in the talk, I don't know what sort of dance Sangharachta had in mind. And he said, yes, I don't either. Um, so he was obviously so inspired, he couldn't even, even remember what sort of dance he had in mind. But anyway, I think he had in mind, you know, some sort of folk dance, that kind of dance, you know, where you're definitely sort of joined together uh, with one another. I remember on uh, one retreat once, there was a, an order member on the retreat who was really into sort of Balkan and... Greek dancing, you know those dance where you've got your arms on each other's shoulders and you're in a sort of circle and you're sort of doing that. It was fantastic. Well, it was a fantastic way of um, dancing and a real sense of, of, of togetherness. Um, and I was looking at some dances of uh, Halveti Sufis in, in Turkey recently and, oh, you know, they were in this sort of circle and joined together and I thought that's the kind of Buddhist dancing we should do, you know. No soloists, no soloists, just this tremendous sense of togetherness, but needing to be really aware of what the feet are doing and what the, the chant what chanting you're doing, that kind of thing. So I think, you know, what he's got in mind, I think, with that with that vision is is community. Spiritual community, Sangha, whether or not you're living together or whether or not you're living in different places, but the community of those coming together around the Dharma. That's a dance, he's saying. It's dynamic, it's alive. It's not concerned with a sort of power hierarchy uh, where there's fixed positions of status. There's constant movement, constant energy. Yes, there will be people more experienced. Of course there will be. You'll discover that through, through the dance. You'll discover... Who, you'll, you'll discover that the dancing masters uh, and the dancing mistresses, well, female masters, um, you'll discover that through the course of, of the dance. But that isn't decided 
beforehand. The thing is you have to come into that harmonious, dynamic communication, that harmonious relationship. So yes, Sangha, coming together. Coming together for one another, coming together you know, especially to work uh, for the Dharma. When I be- became a Mitra, Sangharakshita said that, I know some, maybe some of you here have just become Mitras or are about to become Mitras. At my Mitra ceremony, Sangharakshita said, becoming a Mitra is like, is like joining a dance. He said, you, you, you've been in the wings watching the dance. You've tried out a few steps, but you're not in the dance. This is you joining the dance. This is you making a commitment to this life, to this dance. Maybe one day you'll get to the middle. But you've got to act. Kept going on and on about action. That's why I'm banging on about action, because he did it to me. Um, You've got to make this move. You've got to make this step. You've got to take this step with others uh, for something to happen in your life. He even said to me, everything's been felt Everything's been thought, everything's been said, now it's time to act. Now it's time to join the dance. Well, it, I don't know if it was always like being in a dance working here. Yeah. I can't honestly say that, um, because it was, it, was, it was really rough and ready. But there was enough of a dance to get the place done. You know, and you have to remember, apart from a few of us, uh, none of us had any skills so I've said this before many times when I've come here, don't look too closely at some of the plastering um, because I was learning on the job how to be a, a plasterer. Please don't look too closely at, I think, the ceiling uh, in here. Maybe it's underneath, a bit sort of scenic railway-like uh, in places. Um, but yes, there was enough of a dance to come together and, and, and really create something. But of course, we had our ups and downs uh, really difficult times. We ran out of money. We had to go on the market as, as builders. You know, had to go and sell ourselves you know, out there to bring the money in to make it happen. So this brings me to the next kind of virya. It's the virya that does not lose heart. The energy that does not lose heart. So easy to lose heart. So easy to lose heart in the Buddhist life. It's a very difficult thing. You know, to, to take up the Dharma, believe me, is it's a wonderful thing. It's, I think it's the best thing anybody could do. Of course, I think that. But it's so easy to lose heart. Or if you're not a Buddhist, any life which is making a difference, any life where you're trying to make a difference, you know, with yourself and with the world around you, it's so easy to be discouraged. So easy to feel discouraged. I remember. I remember that we were doing this this job down in Brixton. We were converting this place. And I was putting some, this really, really difficult bit of glass in. Why they entrusted me to do the job, I, heaven only knows. There was nobody else. And I broke the glass. I broke this great big sheet of glass, you know, really expensive stuff, you know, just putting this screw in. And I went to Attila, some of you might know Attila, he lives around the corner, who was my boss. And I said, Attila, I've broken the glass. And Attila really wanted to be angry with me. But he could see I was so crestfallen and upset. So, oh, well, we'll get another one. <laughs> I got another bit of glass and I did the same again. <laughs> it's, 
he was really on the edge at that point. <laughs> and I was terribly disheartened. I was thought, you know, we're, you know, this is sort of impossible. And it was really tough for people like Sabuti and Attila, who were the, who were the real drivers of, of, of this place. You know, you know, really, really hard. So much sort of disheartenment. So that you know, the externals. You know, so many things pushing you, pushing you back. But then there's the internals. You know, it's really sort of hard sometimes, isn't it? You know, in, in yourself, you know, when you're meditating and, you know, maybe you've had a very positive experience of meditation and you're sort of moving forward and, you know, maybe you're even making progress in your loving kindness, you know, meditation or something like that. And then, I mean, I always find this really weird. Every time I have a really good metabhavna, I always seem to have a falling out with somebody immediately <laughs> afterwards. What always seems to happen? I, n- I never sort of say to myself, right, be really mindful. You've had a really terrific loving-kindness meditation, you know, where you've really felt close to people. Really be careful. Kind of guaranteed, you know, that I'm going to, you know, lose it with somebody and, and you know, or just say the, that wretched wrong word, you know, which is, the, you know, and then make it worse by trying to make it better. You know, that thing, you know, you try to make it a bit better and then you said another wrong thing and then before you know it everything is falling apart it's terribly terribly disappointing and you can feel really like losing heart as though ah oh, why bother you know why bother with this you know wretched you know buddhist life i'm just gonna you know give up and start a tobacconist on the edgeware road that was, sorry that's a bit of an in joke that i had with a friend of mine that if it doesn't work we'll start a tobacconist on the edgeware road um or whatever your equivalent is but you know the, yes that that losing heart can so easily happen and this is where spiritual friends dharma friends are really important or if if you know so a friend that really understands you Somebody who can really take your aspiration seriously and they know you well and they don't do that sentimental thing and, oh, you know, you're lovely, really. You know, you really are lovely. You've got so much potential. You say, yes, you've messed up. (laughs) You have. That was, you know, what you did there was really, really off. But you're better than that. I've seen you better than that. I know you can, you've got it in you to do better than that. So, you know, I'm going to support you in that and help you in that. And let's find a way of, you know, moving through this. You know, we put so much emphasis on, on spiritual friendship for this reason. It's really weird in Buddhism because there's this tremendous emphasis on individual responsibility. Even going away on your retreat alone sometimes, a solitary retreat, to really work on your mind. You know, we are in the end responsible for ourselves. And that is precisely why you need good friends. Precisely why you need spiritual friends. You know, people who can really support you, you know, in that endeavour, as you can support them. It's not just you receiving succour from, you know, when you're disheartened. You also need to give it. You also need to really give people support when they're having, you know, a difficult time. Sometimes you need to pretend. Sometimes you need to pretend you're more sorted than you are. No, no, we're all into being authentic and all the rest of it and being very confessional. But I've sometimes been in situations where I've seen somebody in a real state or a group of people, and I'm feeling it too. Not a good idea to, to, to express my doubts in that moment. Really not a good idea. You know, you actually have to 
somebody somewhere needs to unite with what's strong and positive and evoke that uh, for people. You have to be able to do that on occasion for one another. That's real, I think, compassion when you can do that. When you decide, I'm actually going to step up in this situation to be the one with courage, with heart, you know, I'm going to be the one that, that voices that here. So yes, we need to join that shepherd's round dance, not to lose heart. Um, it's 22, nearly. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to uh, speed up so you don't lose heart about whether or not you're going to get home tonight. Um, the next um, uh, virya, the next energy, I'll go to that next, is the energy that does not turn back. The energy that doesn't turn back. Okay, you might well have not, might, might not be losing heart. You're going along in a way reasonably nicely. But things can happen in a Buddhist life, in any kind of creative life. Things can happen which you haven't signed up for, which you haven't bargained for. And it's very, very tempting to say, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't ask for this. They didn't tell me about this. I've been in, let me tell you, I've been in situations, I mean, we're coming here to do plastering for a start. I didn't sign up for that when I became a Buddhist. If somebody had said to me, you'll be plastering walls, and I can remember out there in that reception room, Chintamani, you know, who did the rupas here and did the painting, he was really into the Renaissance. So he wanted to, 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 to paint, or what's that, that stuff where you paint on wet plaster? Art? Sorry? Yeah, but you have that sort of wet plaster. Is it gesso, is it? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. So we had to put this stuff on the wall for him to do a trial. Well, I mean, I'd never done it. So I'm standing there, putting this stuff up, and it's just pouring off the wall all over my face, all over my glasses. I'm just getting... I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> And I remember Attila coming over to me and saying, what's going on, Prabhavadra? I said, this isn't easy, Attila. <laughs> he said, nobody said it was going to be easy, Prabhavadra. <laughs> As if that was a statement about the whole of life. <laughs> so, yes, you will get into places. Sometimes it will be in the, these strange outward situations or... Oh, the worst one of all is in the Sangha. Sorry, I hope I'm not putting you off getting involved. Is <laughs> when you're presented with people that you can't stand and they're in the Sangha. Have you ever had that? You know, it's really... I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, I'm even talking about order members. You suddenly find you're living with somebody and you realise... You know, in the normal course of life, if you'd lived a different sort of life, you would not have chosen to live with this person. You would have walked across the street if you'd seen this person. And there they are. You're living with them year after year <laughs> after year. And there's a voice saying to you, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't ask for this. And, well, what are you going to do? You're going to turn back because of that? Because of this very inconvenient situation? Or are you going to put your energy into transforming your attitude? Your attitude. Are they as bad as you think you are, as, as you think they are? Or is it actually you're worse than you think you are? Is it 
actually more like that. And when you actually look at it and you see the way they're living and practising and you see the fact, even worse, your friends get on with them. <laughs> you know, and, they, and they talk really positively about them. And, and you think, am I mad? You, well, in a way you are. And you, know, you have to kind of work on it. So there's all sorts of, of things like this. You know, and as you go on in your Buddhist practice, it might be you suddenly discover something in the Dharma like a really knotty problem. A really knotty problem. You suddenly come across something in Buddhism, in Buddhist tradition, that goes against all of your understanding and instincts. And yet there's so much that's positive and so much that's good and they're in conflict. And the, the tendency is to turn back. Actually, the tradition says, no, go into it. Go into that conflict. Put energy into it. So you're being presented with the limitation of your own consciousness and it's an opportunity to transcend that so don't turn back and certainly don't turn back if you're trying to build something in the external world as well and that brings me to the, far, the, the, the fourth of the four gifts um, and the last of the virias Sangharachita's final gift is a garden planted in the wilderness wonderful sort of biblical imagery that's very sort of familiar to us, garden, a paradise, you know, you know being shaped out of uh, the wilderness. This, of course, is his vision of, um, well, the world being transformed, you know, by the Dharma. And you're in a bit of the garden right now. Um, this was a wilderness when we came here. It was an urban wilderness. And it's wonderful to be able to sit in a room and actually talk about a, gar about a garden being transformed out of a, a very, very rough uh, place, a very, very rough area. And, um, of course, it's not just, you know, not just this place. I mean, there's so many places. I mean, not long after the opening of, 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 the, of the London Buddhist Centre, Lokamitra and myself and, and others went to India to, to, to start you know, Dharma activities there, to start, you know, creating a garden, you know, in that particular wilderness to work together. And the, and the garden is, the garden in the wilderness is really providing, if you like, the environments. Sometimes these are called in, in, in our movement institutions, which is such an unfortunate word in many ways. But it, it's also, a, it's important to understand that word. We need positive structures to come together in, places where we can dance, places where we can see the truth of the Dharma, places where we can, you know, really work on our consciousness. It's great to have people who come together, but it's great to have a place. It's great to have an environment. And of course, you've got the wonderful, you know, Vajrasana project being developed there, with its, and it's going to have its wonderful gardens, you know, in that place. And, you know, Paramabandhu and others developing the gardens the, uh, the literal urban garden here is so positive, so important. So a garden planted in the wilderness, could you work there? We need more and more of these gardens, you know, all over the place. London itself, such a big, sprawling city, and there's a few, you know, Buddhist centres, and, and, you know, not just Tree Ratna places, and, you know, I'm sure other places, which which are environments where you can feel that you're, unfolding together, you know, in the truth. But the question is, 
do you want to come and work in those places yourselves? So as well as leading a Dharma life for yourself, do you want to join with others to develop those gardens? Because the wilderness is, is getting bigger. The wilderness is getting bigger and bigger. And the wilderness is very, very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. I, I live in a very beautiful place. I live in a sort of paradise in, 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 in Norfolk. Beautiful, especially this time of year. Padmaloka, the lotus realm with its rose, roses and lilac and wisteria and you know all this you know gorgeous stuff and a fabulous shrine room filled with paintings and images and fabulous you know people and 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 so on i have to ask myself periodically how can you possibly justify this you 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 have some questions to answer you know in your own life in your own practice to live in this environment you know, where, where, where others are living in very different environments. I happen to think it's the most valuable thing I do, but I'm very, very conscious that I'm sustained by really wonderful conditions in that particular version of the garden. And I'm very, very clear that one of the things I'm doing in helping men prepare for ordination is that I'm training gardeners. I'm training people who have the courage, not just to work on themselves but who want to get together with others and really do something because I think the world really needs the Dharma, it needs lots of things we know that um, but there are so many existential casualties, so many people suffering, so many people without heart and hope because they don't have something like the Dharma, whether or not they're going to be Buddhists but something of that quality, something of that nature there's a Persian uh, mystic who, who who had a particular kind of vision of of existence. Well, it was a, it was a sort of uh, uh, you know uh, um, an audio um, vision. If you no, you can't have that, can you? Well, you know what I mean. He 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 had he heard the great silent occult clamor of living beings, which was their cry of longing for genuine existence and not finding it not having it the world is crying out and well we can be part of a response to that to that to that cry to that great cry cry so come and be gardens thank you we hope you enjoyed this week's podcast Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.